Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. To get you through the holiday week, check out theringer.com for our July streaming recommendations, analysis on the U.S. women's national team during the World Cup, and takeaways from an exciting start to NBA free agency. Also, we'll be sticking to our regular podcast schedule, so make sure to tune in to your favorite shows throughout the week as usual. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Recapables, a podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. In case you need a reminder, this is our mini-series about Stranger Things. Today we'll be covering episodes four through six of Stranger Things 3. That obviously means we will be getting into spoilers, and it means that there will be another episode of this podcast tomorrow to talk about episodes seven and eight. So if you're pacing your binge along with us, that's very flattering, but that's the pace that we're going at. I am your host, Allison Herman, and joining me on the other line in New York, it's my Miles Surrey. Miles, how are you doing? Hey, yeah, no, I'm ready to talk. You can't spell America without Erica. This is true. I also feel like in the interest of full disclosure, both those of us here in LA, me and our producer Evan and Miles are in very hot rooms right now, which we did not (laughs) plan to coincide with episode four, which is called the sauna test for reasons that will soon become obvious, but happens to be very on theme clutching water and a shard of very sharp tile to go at any aggressors who might come in the room. But yeah, you threw to a take that I would like to share just to alienate all of our listeners right off the bat, which is I am not pro Erica. I think she is the cousin Oliver of Stranger Things 3. <laughs> and you know, she was obviously very cute and well used sporadically last season. This is Lucas's little sister who has now grown into like a full mall brat. Um, I think they're leaning a little too hard onto the smarmy, cutesy, charming tween girl thing. I, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I just needed to get it off my chest right away. You know, she she reminds me of a precocious, big little lies kid in that way. Yeah, I think she and Chloe would get along, although I guess <laughs> she's probably like technically Bonnie's age if you if you did the, the math out right. But... Oh, that's true. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, I think I, I'm not as anti-Erica. Like, it's clear that the Duffer brothers are very reactive with their show. Like, after season one with the internet outrage over Barb, they're like, hey, we're going to throw to uh, Barb's parents' morning and find something for Jonathan and Nancy to do. And then, like, they were like, oh, uh, you guys like Steve as, like, a, a dad and Dustin's best friend. Like, they're going to hang out all of season three. So it doesn't surprise me that like Erica had a couple funny scenes in season two. So they're just giving her an expanded role. But, you know, I, I'm honestly, I, I'm not like crazy about her, but I don't dislike her as much as I thought I would, I guess, if that makes sense. We're recording this ahead of time. So I'm curious where fans and critics will stand on like the Erica divide. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, fan service to me is a little, or being reactive is a little different from fan service, particularly when it comes to child actors. So, especially because I was one of the people who was complaining that Barb was just not treated well within the story in a way that became a meme, but I think arose out of a very serious shortcoming that people were kind of comically overcompensating for. I think with child actors, there's a tendency to be like, oh, people think this kid's adorable. We better wring like every last awe out of the internet before, you know, they get too old. And Stranger Things has largely, I think, done a really good job of handling its kids. And, you know, even Dustin, I feel like, of the core cast has the most tendencies to be that. And they've somehow managed to make him still endearing without being grating. And I think Erica, I don't know, maybe the actress is hamming it up a little, but I also think that's very much written into the part. And... It's just not quite working for me as well as other like 
cute Stranger Things pleasant surprises have in the past. Yeah, it is true. I feel like the the actress is a bit one note in like her delivery and sort of the the cadences of it. But um, you know, I, I as far as like having like you said the material to work with, it's also a bit redundant. But for the most part, I think Erica's fun. Like it's not going to totally ruin my enjoyment of the season. So I support her trying to get a lot of free ice cream and extolling the virtues of capitalism. This is true. We also don't have to get like go too far down this road, but it is probably relevant to just talk a little bit about how Stranger Things treats race, which is either it doesn't really exist and we don't talk about it, even though we're in this lily white Indiana town that I'm sure if you like quizzed people about their views on certain social issues oh would not be the most liberal and tolerant of communities. But it either doesn't exist or the the black characters that they use. Like I feel like Erica definitely fits into like, oh, she's like sassy. Like that's definitely an archetype. And then it's reinforced by also in the set of issues that we're talking about later when Nancy and Jonathan and company go to the hospital, there's the desk attendant on the phone who basically just exists to you know, give a bunch of clapbacky one-liners. And it's not necessarily notable on their own, respectively. They're not, like, problematic or anything, but it's just, they're both fact points into the overall, like, maybe this is not the show's strongest point, I guess is how I would put it. No, that's a good point. Also, I always forget that that was, like, kind of a a thing they were trying to do with Billy last season where he also didn't like Lucas because he was black, but then they just sort of brushed that off, too. So I, I don't think they handled that stuff very well. Yeah, that's probably fair. Um, So we're talking about the middle stretch of the season, which I think we should probably say right off the bat does not lend itself to a tremendous amount of analysis. Like something I think we've started to notice now that we're breaking down the season in these three parts is like the first three is the setup. So you obviously get the exciting stuff, the exposition, you find out what's changed. You also get the more low-key character work before shit starts hitting the fan and the noise level starts rising. And we are now fully in the thick of it where it's just plot, 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 stuff happens revelations happening, but it's not a lot of like thematic stuff. It's not a lot of the really fun period appropriate stuff. So we're going to do our best, but I think you would agree with me that this is maybe not the most exciting or richest part of the season from a like recapping podcast point of view. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the payoffs aren't happening just yet. There's kind of like a, there's a bit of a eighties music cue references drought too. It's just sort of focus on the nitty gritty. So we'll, we'll do our best. Yes. We just wanted to be upfront about that. There's not exactly, you know, another amazing American pie needle drop to <laughs> help us through the murder. But my, that brings us to our tweet length review, which mine was just enough with the period detail. Let's get to the goo, which is, I think this season of stranger things kind of ups the body horror in a way that definitely feels like a new uh, way to explore its premise and a new way to dive into its various 80s genre references. But it is also quite gross to watch. Yes. I mean, like just thinking about what the mind failure actually is in the context of these episodes, it's just basically a bunch of human and rat flesh put together into like this one giant thing which is uh pretty disgusting even and fertilizer for and chemicals oh, yeah. yeah yeah got got to got to keep the thing together with some fertilizer yeah and weird like interdimensional antimatter or whatever we want to call the the substance that is the base of this but yeah so before we get going you had a tweet length review as well right yes uh lots of bad screams uh, yes, there I'm, are there are yeah. good screams as as L learns this episode. Yes, uh, yeah, the unfortunate context of this tweet, but um, yeah, this was uh, definitely a rough episode for the the citizens of Hawkins, especially those who were quote flayed. Yes. So the flayed is the title of the fifth episode, of course, and it's probably I think the villain watch is maybe going to be the richest 
portion of this episode just because this is where we find out like what is the mind flare slash upside down up to and how do they how does it plan to attack Hawkins and it turns out that Billy is the so-called host he's kind of analogous to what Will was last season except he's been fully taken over and is recruiting a bunch of citizens by drugging and kidnapping them. They are now also possessed. So the mind flare is tons of puppets that are just running around Hawkins. And then once they kind of live out their use, they are transformed into goo. And uh, basically they're a building block for this larger, extremely disgusting. You brought up uh, some, I think you brought up Ridley Scott last week or some like alien, um, I believe. I, I mentioned uh, aliens, just the James Cameron actiony stuff, but this is very John Carpenter's The Thing for sure. Yeah, and also just the actual, we get a look at what the Mind Flayer looks like and it's like earthly incarnation and that kind of back protruding skull to me read like extremely alien. But you're right, there's a That's lot of too. John Carpenter going on. Yeah, I, that especially came to mind when um, Nancy's fighting her two possessed uh, Hawkins post bosses at the hospital and when they're both defeated, their like bodies start convulsing and they just sort of combine. It was very like in the thing when you know someone finds out the person is who they say they are, and then, like, the body will, like, twitch out of control and transform into something really grotesque. Um, and, you know, I th- I mean, I love... The Thing is one of my favorite horror movies, so I'm I'm all for uh, the show gleefully riffing off that. Yeah, and I can't tell if this is maybe more amped up this season than it has been in past seasons, but I'm getting hard, hard, hard Final Girl vibes from Nancy. Not to say anything about the mortality of those around her, but, you know, the scene in the hospital where she's, like, facing off and her hair is all messed up and her makeup's a little smeared and she has the, I don't know, just the aura I'm getting from her is definitely that, like, lone survivor, I'm forced to rely on myself very, very 70s horror type figure. And I think she's played that in the past, but they're like really leaning into it now. Yeah, they really are. Also, going back to that scene real quick, it looks like, you know, at the start of the sixth episode when uh, Eleven rescues Nancy, it also made me wonder a bit about like how Eleven's being deployed on the show because I feel like um, we've gotten to a repetitive formula like going back to the first and second seasons and how they concluded of like, you know, some upside down monster sort of cornering the gang and then Eleven comes in, uses her powers and sort of wards the evil off. And and I, well, in the way the first season looked like she sacrificed herself doing it. But like, do you think that's a bit of a problem where Eleven's like so conveniently powerful it sort of like takes away some of the tension from these scenes? Well, I think they almost like foreclosed on a way out of this last season where, you know, my te- my inclination when I was thinking of, yeah, you're totally right. The 11 dynamic definitely does get repetitive. And especially, you know, you can't help but notice like she's their trump card. So like what happens when she's taken out of commission or, you know, there are obvious like ends or places for the storyline to go. And I was like, oh, it'd be cool if, you know, you discovered someone else with her powers who could help her. And it was like, oh, right. We already did that last year. We found the other you know, subjects of the experiment. And it was this, like, weird, dangling, isolated episode that was very critically reviled, I would say, and just didn't feel integrated into the fabric of the show at all. And, yeah, I mean, it just feels like they decided to explore that last season and kind of write it off. And maybe they could bring it back in in future seasons, but that seems like it, it could have been a place for this one to go, and they just can't because they've already gone there. Yeah, no, it was a shame because I I wasn't a fan of that episode. I I mean, it was a cool idea, but the execution was off and it just felt very removed from the rest of the show. In in fact, like that was kind of most of Eleven last season where it felt like she was sort of existing on a different series because she was just off like 
going to Chicago and living in a cabin secluded from everyone else. Totally. And so this is Villain Watch. So we've done the kind of supernatural side of it, but we also learn a lot more in this episode about what's going on with these Russians and specifically what is going on with the mall <laughs> that turns out to be owned by the Russians and used as a headquarters for a secret lab, which I have many follow-up questions. But for now, like, what did you think of that whole side of the proceedings? I, I honestly, I love it because I could just imagine like the Russian discussion of like, you know, how do we get into Hawkins? Like, oh, well... These Americans sure like their malls, so it just seems like the perfect front to just sort of get all this stuff going. It also, it, it fun, funnily enough, uh, it reminded me a bit of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and how Hawkins is kind of officially like Sunnydale levels of just doomed. Well, it is directly like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and that is there is also a smarmy, corrupt mayor who turns out to have a lot to do with the nefarious goings on in this small, you know, little hamlet. And that is so Carrie Elwes' mayor, it turns out, has been having shady dealings with the Russians. Joyce and Hopper are on the trail and they see this, you know, big brutish. We're just going to call him Russian Terminator from now on. But the Russian Terminator is walking around, beats up Hopper. They trace it back to the mayor and the mayor basically says like, oh, I've been getting bribes and stuff in return for not asking any questions and letting these people do whatever they want, which like, fair, I totally see his thought process, but does a small town mayor really have that much authority to enable an international conspiracy? Like, what is the custom situation? How are these people (laughs) literally like getting into the country? How do they get the equipment? Like, the logistical nature of being in the height of the Reagan era Cold War and just being like, we are going to set up a military base in the middle of our hostile foreign power or like our adversary just like does not scan at all to me. Obviously, this is a fantasy, but still. Yeah. No, I know what you mean, though, because I also feel like given what the U.S. government already knows about Hawkins, they would probably keep some tabs on the town, even though the portal was ostensibly closed to the upside down. It's like, I don't know. I mean, this is kind of a a safety hazard. Like, you should probably be aware if, like, a bunch of Russians just decide to hole up there. Yeah, and I mean, Joyce and Hopper do go for reinforcements, which we'll talk about a little later in the episode, but it does seem a little weird that, like, they have contacts in the federal government, and as soon as they're like, something shady and weird is going on here, it involves the Russian, it's definitely not our government. They're not like, maybe we should call our guy (laughs) and uh, get some backup, you know? But that would be too convenient, because then they could just take care of the Russians in a second. I mean, like, yes, that's definitely the right answer, but, you know, I just feel like, We're podcasters. We're paying attention. We should register our objections before we move on. Um, So we're going to do our next segment now, which is just do we ship it, which obviously like we don't have as much time for petty relationship drama now that there's like a giant disembodied monster running around (laughs) town and sucking people up. But, you know, there's still teenagers can always make time to fight amongst themselves. So first, Jonathan and Nancy, I think, have one of the most interesting conflicts, which is you know, they're at the Hawkins Post and they don't realize that the editor-in-chief is possessed, so they piss him off by pursuing the story and get fired. And this leads to an argument between them where Jonathan points out you know, you don't understand I actually need this job. And Nancy points out, you don't understand, like, I'm being ignored and belittled because I'm a woman, and that really sucks. Mortgage, college tuition, you know, they're real things, Nancy. Things that you don't care about only because you don't have to. I didn't realize I lived in a bubble. Well, you do. You want everything handed you on a silver platter. I mean, we were interns, Nancy. Interns. What did you expect? That you would make Star Reporter in a month? Crack the big case? 
You sound just like them. You realize that, right? Just like Bruce and those assholes. Yeah, yeah, those assholes gave his job. Is that what that was? That was humiliating. Humiliating. Yeah, the real world sucks. I deal with it like the rest of us. You don't know what it's like. Neither do you. Well, then, I guess we just don't understand each other anymore. I guess not. But yeah, like, that's a really interesting fight that is not just like, oh, like, you're popular and I'm not and we're attracted to each other. I don't, it's like a, a new and richer level for the relationship to play out on. Yeah, yeah. It's a more mature development that I think reflects them being together for a little while now. I, I forget how the timeline works, but I feel like they've been dating for probably almost a year or something. Yeah, probably. I mean, it's definitely been nine months at least since last season. So, like, in teenager years, they've basically been in a, in a long-term relationship. Absolutely. I mean, is this something that you think... I guess this kind of becomes secondary once the hospital stuff starts and he wants to, he needs to like come in and actually rescue her. But yeah, was this something that you thought would jeopardize the relationship or they're ultimately come out stronger? And, you know, we're three seasons in, so I feel like we're around the point where the OTP type couple yes. start, start, start splitting off, you know? Yeah, no, because I also feel like if this is like, you know, to, to sort of think about like that post high school, like pre college sort of a dating scenario that happens in a lot of people's personal lives like that's sort of a make or break for a lot of people because it's like you know if one of them moves out of town are they going to try long distance like you know what what are they even doing with their I mean obviously they were interning at the post but it's like what are they going to do next it does feel like one of the more authentic relationships in that sense though I do feel like with the way the storylines have diverged this season I feel like we actually haven't been getting as much Nancy as some of the other couples and the other characters that have been sharing screen time yeah they also you know kind of merge back in with the rest of the crew relatively quickly like by episode six they are no longer sequestered and I think the implication is that they're probably going to be running with the rest of the gang for the rest of the season but first we should probably check in with another teen pairing who aren't a couple yet but obviously Dustin would very much like them to be this is of course Steve and Robin who have teamed up with Dustin and Erica to do the kind of like what's up with the Russians in the mall side quest again we're in the part of the season where everyone is like very segmented there are these like Joyce and Hopper the younger kids the older kids and for a while Jonathan and Nancy are off on their own but like there's three or four very distinct subplots that are eventually going to coalesce but Steve and Robin they sneak into this via this elevator they bring briefly think they might have to drink their own pee. Um, <laughs> they don't have to do that and eventually make it out into the base, but then they are captured. Dustin and Erica escape, but then Steve and Robin have a very entertaining truth serum scene that was just fantastic. And I thought Joe Keery and Maya Hawk did just an incredible job with the comedy in that. Also, shout out to Steve for finally winning his first fight on the show against a Russian soldier, no less. Yes, he said that he would take one out, and he did. And unfortunately, that was not enough. But I think he <laughs> impressed everyone around him. So good for him. He obviously could use a win. Uh, yeah, do we think that this is headed in the conventional, like they're going to pair up and he's going to realize that Robin is actually cool and she's going to realize he's not a douchebag anymore type direction. Yeah, I feel like the truth serum might enable it a bit, but it does seem like they're just perfect for each other. But then again, like with Steve's luck, I feel like this sort of stuff doesn't always work out for him. So I'm curious to see what they might have in store. Totally. And we'll get to the adults in our in our next segment. But I feel like we have to at least check in with the 
Mike and Lucas versus Elle and Max sort of dynamic that sprung up where the girlfriends are mad at their boyfriends. And so everyone is polarizing along gender lines and no one is actually talking about or fixing their problems, which seems very on brand for late middle school, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend arguments, but it's still probably not great. (laughs) No. And it's also, I I do think it's kind of hilarious and maybe very kind of young teenish of them that like, even when they all figure out the mind flayers like back and he's doing horrible things to the citizens. They're still concerned about what their girlfriends are thinking when they're in the bathroom together having a chat. I can't get Hopper off my back all summer. Now all of a sudden he's hiking with Will's mom to Illinois and Dustin's MIA too. I mean, this can't be a coincidence. What does it matter? The bottom line is they're not here. It's up to us. Up to us to do what exactly? Find Billy and stop him. Okay, yeah, that's a really nice sentiment, but even if Elle could find him again, and that's a pretty big if, then what? We burn the shit out of him and make sure he doesn't escape this time. Okay, then what? Then we win. No, see, that's the problem. We don't. We don't win. We got the Mind Flare out of Will before and he just came right back. We don't just have to stop Billy. We have to stop the Mind Flare. How in the hell do we do that? I don't know. Maybe Elle does. What are they still doing in there? I do think one dynamic that we should probably talk about is that I think Max is just like really excited to have an ally who's also mad at their boyfriend. And so... She's not really invested in helping Ellen Mike patch things up. She wants to inflame the tensions, which is not like bad. You can't really blame her for it. But I definitely think that she's antagonizing or has like a vested interest in antagonizing and making things worse, which is tough. Yeah, but I I do appreciate it versus the last season where it was just that very stereotypical like Elle's just jealous of Max because she thinks he likes or she likes Mike. And so like you had that little conflict there. So I, I much rather see them being friends than having like petty arguments. Totally. So we're just going to move on to our next segment now, which we're calling Dad Bod Corner. It is dedicated to ours and the internet's favorite character on this show, Police Chief Jim Hopper, as played by David Harbour, the best personality on Twitter. Mark Hamill might have a, a say about that, by the way, but he's definitely I mean, top he's five. top five. Oh, we yeah. can at least agree oh, yeah. on that. But, um, you know, he obviously gets to a lot in these two episodes. It also leads to the return of Brett Gelman's Murray Bauman tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist character, which is always a delight, especially if you have last seen Brett Gelman as a truly loathsome individual on (laughs) Fleabag. So good for him for actually getting to play sympathetic for once. But there's a lot of exciting stuff for old Chief Hopper going on, starting with uh, slapping around the mayor. I mean, the mayor got what's coming to him, especially after he brought up Hopper's uh, dead daughter. I mean, that's just a low blow, dude. Yeah, the whole, like, I don't care about your dead daughter thing is, like, truly over-the-top, mustache-twirling 80s villain nonsense. But he is quite literally an 80s villain, so it sort of makes a lot of sense. Um, He also decides to, in the name of police business, uh, steal a sick sports car from a gas station. Oh, so sick. The Todd father? Yeah, it's not the most, like, slickly performed acquisition. He's just like, oh, what's your first name? Uh, Pick the car up from the station. So uh, I'm not optimistic about that car's longevity or the owner's ability to recover it. But it's still very fun. But obviously all this happens in the process of uh, Joyce and Hopper go into an abandoned house. They stumble on a bunch of Russians there. They narrowly escape Terminator Man. And they acquire a sort of prisoner of sorts in this uh, mild-mannered scientist named Alexei, 
who they need a translator for. So that's why they go to Illinois to see Bauman. And um, they have a lot of very comical interactions with him because he's not the most cooperative, but he's also not like really threatening or malevolent. I don't know if they did the best job of like fleshing out what the internal relationship between the Russians was supposed to be. Is Alexei supposed to be like a conscientious objector? I don't even know, but he's very entertaining. No, I I really loved his uh, request for a a cherry Slurpee and the fact that that takes Hopper into a spiral when he's like, I get him a cherry Slurpee, then what? He wants a helicopter to charter him to his own private island, Uh, which is, you know, Hopper, uh, as the kids say, snapped. Yeah, I don't know. Like, as a human woman, the scene where he's just, like, smugly convinced that he did the right thing, even though they can literally hear the Russian, like, start the car and start to drive away was just, like, I could feel my hackles raising. I've just been in so many situations where, like, men refuse to admit they're wrong, even though there's, like, very concrete evidence that they're not or that they are. Um, As it turns out, Hopper's ultimately vindicated, but I still feel like there would have been a better way to maybe convince Alexi that they're all on the same side. But yeah, I didn't quite get the whole like, oh, he'll be afraid of the big evil Russian. Like, I, I don't know. Just the whole, when does Alexi decide that the upside down thing is kind of a terrible idea? He's been working for them for years. I don't quite get what's going on there, but then again, I'm not sure we really have to. Yeah, I will say, though, at least, like, since we know from the very first scene of the show that, like, his superior was killed over basically a failed experiment, I I do think there's definitely just an understandable trepidation to do anything around the Russians, especially with Russian Terminator hanging around, but... Uh, You know, yeah, Hopper, um, I mean, I love the guy, but uh, his sort of, him being vindicated and his general attitude towards Joyce, it's sometimes like fun in a like weirdly flirtatious way, but sometimes he can be a bit obnoxious. Well, they do have that cute moment where she like closes a lead in the case and he's like, you should come work for me at the police department, which, you know. I I would welcome that development. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. Hawkins PD coming to Netflix sometime in 2021. Yeah, I think that probably uh, wraps it up in the whole dead bud hopper corner. So we mentioned before the pickings are sparse, but this is Stranger Things, so we do need to go over some of the music cues. Just consider it like it helps us appreciate what we had last week and what we presumably will have next time. I would say like maybe the most recognizable, not actually an 80s period cue is just Will Meet Again playing like very creepily over a bunch of like mute zombies who are just waiting to be, you know, merged with the mothership. I called it the flayed convention in our notes, but... Perfect. Yeah, there's a lot of that, like, very horror movie type thing where there's a lot of ironic deployment of maybe, like, classier or more stilted genres of music. Like, there's also a bunch of, like, old-timey swing playing over, you know, the inside of Marie Bauman's den. There was also... <laughs> this is how deprived we were of good cues. I also really liked the dramatic choral music, as the subtitle described it, at the end of the sixth episode. I was trying to figure out where I'd heard the tune before, and it was reminiscent from Zack Schneider's Watchmen, the scene when, like, Dr. Manhattan's created, and you get the whole origin story for that. Really fun diversion, think, thinking about Watchmen again, but... Um, I just cannot yeah. believe that you have an intimate enough knowledge of that movie to be able to recall music cues from it. I think we're, like, literally eight years later at this point. Look, I, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I It's, like, my only Zack Schneider movie that I stand. Watchmen is good, guys. 
I mean, are you like prepping for the series? I'm just trying to get like how you got to the point where you are not only pro Watchmen, which like I remember I saw it in a theater and I liked it, but also I don't think I had a developed taste at that point in my life. <laughs> you know. Um, look, all I'm saying is it's available on Netflix and you can do a lot of stuff when you're cooking. Okay, I'm starting to get a clearer picture here. Uh, Before we go, and before we break down the final two episodes of this season of Stranger Things, we got to talk about the most 80s moment. So I think the clear front runner is definitely Hopper being described as Fat Rambo. I mean, yeah, Fat Rambo, you could go Fat John McClane, like whatever 80s action hero you want to label him him as, it's uh, pretty on brand for Hopper right now. Lots and lots of beefcakes. It's very in vogue at the time. You know, Eleven checking out that old Wonder Woman comic and Max being like, this is what, you sh- what you're missing out on. If she- All she has to do is wait 30 years for a film adaptation. <laughs> yeah. but, I was literally know. about to say the same thing, but it'll be <laughs> worth it when it comes. Um, exactly. Also, I feel like the use of truth serum in an interrogation scene is also very 80s, you know, because when you see movies have those types of scenes now, it's like, let's just go with the actual gritty torture stuff. So... It's worth stressing, like, I, I feel like a truth serum thing is is a lot more playful and fun versus, like, yeah, let's yank out, like, Steve's fingernails or something awful like that. Yeah, I mean, truth serum is also just, like, a time-honored comic device, and it, it definitely feels a little, like, shticky and throwbacky. And then we get a preview of the 4th of July festival that is thrown by this corrupt mayor to, I guess, like give the masses an opiate or something so that they'll reelect him. And that also just felt definitely very, very throwbacky. Like, I had a lot of visceral childhood memories of fairs and carnivals. I don't know if you did, because as we established, uh, you did not grow up in the continental United States. I'm sorry. I I couldn't, I didn't have a say in this. But uh, no, for me, you know, it was kind of Six Flags or Bust. So I love a good roller coaster. Um, I don't know if you're you're a fan. (laughs) I am, but that's like a separate genre. Like the Six Flags stuff is all very like, um, how do I say this? Structurally sound. It's all part of like (laughs) a big theme park that is meticulously planned and organized and maintained. I've actually ridden some of the rides that we get like previews of, and I'm pretty sure those were like literally the same rides. Like they were built in the 80s and I was just still, you know, riding them 20 years later. So that at least feels very accurate. But we're obviously going to see a whole lot more of the carnival in the next couple of episodes because it sure seems like that's going to be the center of a whole lot of terrifying, uh, maybe deaths of some innocent bystanders. I don't even know, but yeah, until- it probably won't be good. Yeah, I think that's like the one certainty we can have going in is that you know, uh, probably the monster is not going to win. This is still you know a fun family entertainment, but I think he's got a few more tricks up his sleeves before the season comes to a close. But with that, that brings us to the end of our second episode of The Recapable Stranger Things. Please be on the lookout for the final episode tomorrow. We are very excited to talk about the conclusion of the season. And until then, thank you for listening. 